Welcome to another episode of the PFC Podcast. The opinions you hear are ours and doesn't necessarily reflect anyone else's. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC Podcast. Today we have a special guest, Dr. Givens, speaking to us about dealing with C-Bernie patients in the field. Where this talk came from is um, I was sitting in the use of SOC surgeon's um, annual meeting about nine months ago, and we were talking about C-Bernie, and the SOCOM surgeon stood up and said, does anybody have their arms around this? And the answer was a bunch of blank stares in the room of, we're kind of trying to do this, we're not really sure what we're doing. And so at that point, we decided to at least tackle the clinical piece of it. Let's tackle some CPGs and get them written and get them into the joint theater registry so that there is a at least a universal approach to start with, and then we'll tweak it. And that's why I'm saying the things that I'm putting out are just concepts at this point, because they're going to need to be tried by people that actually do the work and the job, as opposed to those of us that just sit around writing stuff. Um, so I'm looking for that level of feedback. All right. So this is what we're going to talk about. We'll talk just a little background. I don't need to give it to this audience. So we're going to fly by that. Um, we'll talk about why we care about this and then give a little approach. And then I am going to go through some very specific clinical details at the end. Um, in my toxicology career, I have had the benefit of seeing some cyanide patients, of seeing chlorine patients, um, of seeing organophosphate, so as close to a nerve agent that you can and learn some things along the way. So I do want to share that a little bit because I think it helps people to have a little bit of clinical perspective. Um, there are a lot of resources out there on C-Bernie. All of these are DOD made, and there is nothing I'm going to tell you that actually doesn't exist in these books. Okay, so they're actually very well written, they're very well resourced, and they represent the body of knowledge that's out there and actually is correct. Unfortunately, they're not easy to read and easy to use. And so I'm gonna hopefully take what's in all of these books and try and put it into maybe a little bit more user-friendly format that I think most of us in this room are used to seeing. Um, you guys okay if I skip over all this stuff? Everybody knows C-Bernie is a big deal right now. So what I'm trying to get people to make the transition from is like fear of C-Bernie. It's like, oh my God, C-Bernie, we're all gonna die. Let's just stop thinking about it because it's too scary and it's too hard and I don't want to approach it. Um, one of the colleagues that I've been working with, he describes it, we pretend like it's a candied apple. You know, like once you dip the apple in there, it's all covered and it's all sticky and messy and it's like you can't even eat it because you're like, that's just too difficult to deal with. And that's what we want to get away from. We want to see C-Bernie as something that we can methodically approach and have a solution set for moving forward that's actually very familiar to us and easy to use. So here we go. All right, so when you're talking C-Bernie casualties, um, you're going to have a couple of things. You can either have a deliberate attack where we had intelligence and everybody's all geared up and it happens, or it's more likely probably going to be an asymmetrical attack where we didn't know it was coming, it was some sort of dirty device. And guess what? When the past, when we talked about C-Bernie, it was kind of like it was going to happen in this little bubble in its own little world on the side with a bunch of chemo officers paying attention to it. That's not the reality of the situation. There's a good chance that it's going to be a combination of C-Bernie and trauma patients. So we're going to have to manage trauma, and we're going to have to manage exposure, and we're going to have to figure out how to do that all together using the tools we already have in place. 
And so that's what I'm trying to do is go, let's look at this reality-based and be able to approach this like we approach every other patient, but just make it unique to the C. burning situation. All right, so everybody in here is familiar with March, right? Okay, so this is not my idea. This is Devin DeFeos, who's also uh, 18 Delta. This is his concept, and I will not take one speck of credit for it. He came up with this. He's been training people on it for a couple of years. Um, I just met him and said that's genius, and we're publishing it in JSON coming up this winter, and then we're building all the CPGs off of this. So this is what I always say. I'm really good at writing, but I have to tell you that the 18 Deltas that I've met in my career have given me every good idea I've ever had to put into practical clinical practice, and so I, I would encourage you guys to give me lots of feedback because that's really where all the good ideas come from. So when we're talking about March squared, so that's how we're deciding to pronounce it, we're going to take the very familiar March concept and we're just going to overlay C. Bernie on top of it, okay? So here's your normal March sequence. All we're going to do is just take those letters and repeat them and then add what we're going to do for C. Bernie. So M is your mass, A is your antidotes, um, R is your rapid spot decon, C is your countermeasures, which we'll talk about specifically what those are. And then H, we're still going to address kind of head wounds and hypothermia because they apply in both situations. And then the E is obviously get your patient out of there. So let's go through these in a little bit more detail. So just like in TCCC, when you approach your patient, you have to decide what's killing my casualty right now. And if what's killing your casualty right now is the effective fire that's coming at you, you have to deal with that, okay? When we approach C. Bernie, you can think of the chemical agent as that effective fire. Or you might have both that you're dealing with at the same time, and then it becomes a decision of, okay, which one is killing me right now? And that's what you're gonna deal with. And so it might be the environment, it might be the bullets flying at you. It actually might be, and most likely, is to be the massive hemorrhage. So even in a C. Bernie environment, I would predict that if there was ammunition close enough, that hemorrhage is gonna be the thing you're gonna to have to deal with most frequently. So don't forget your TCCC principles when you are dealing with C. Bernie, and that's what this concept is trying to get back to. And it might be C. Bernie. And in order to deal with C. Bernie, we have to do some agent identification. And right now, inside the DOD, there is no good tool to figure out what is this agent. And so, in working with our partners, NATO actually has a standard. And I can't say that it's my favorite, but I can say it is being used, and it's being used by multiple countries. And so, in that case, it's like, you know what, let's get on board with this, because there's a good chance that we'll be interacting with these partners, and maybe doing stuff alike makes sense once in a while. So, this is what they actually use. They use this crest concept. Um, so you define the patient in terms of their level of consciousness, you look at their respirations, you look at their eyes, which everybody knows that is the big determinant for nerve agent, is whether or not they have meiosis, because everything else can be mixed picture on other agents. Then look at their secretions and look at their skin. And so that's a mnemonic that's being used by our NATO partners and we should probably think about moving towards adopting it so we can all kind of be interchangeable when it comes to patients on the battlefield. So when you're trying to do agent identification, you're trying to figure out which agents are gonna kill you right now. 
Help me out here. Nerve agent. And then what's the other one that's going to kill you right now? Cyanide. All right. So mustard's not going to kill you right now. It's going to give you some blisters a little bit later. Say riot control agents aren't going to kill you right now. Um, your like chlorines and stuff like that. While if you're stuck in them, they could kill you right now. You got to get out of them. But their actual systemic effects aren't as immediate. So you have to decide: is this a nerve agent and is this cyanide? And you do that using Crest. And if it is one of those agents then it's gonna fall into your immediate sequence, okay? And we're gonna talk about that a little bit right here. So there's Crest, sorry. Talking over my slides. So here's a little visual so you can conceptualize how this looks just like TCCC the way we, we already know it, all right? So you have your care under fire. Care under fire is when you're doing only what you have to do to save that patient's life, recognizing that the environment is probably the biggest threat at that point. Same exact principle applies. So if I'm dealing with C. burn, I'm deciding, is it the environment, is it the bullets, is it the agent, is it the massive hemorrhage, or is there something I need to do about this chemical injury? And in the case, if it was a nerve agent, what would you do? Auto-injectors, right? Okay, you're not gonna start an IV on the X, right? But you sure, sure as heck can get an auto-injector on board, and so this applies to types of interventions that you would do just like you would in a care under fire situation. Something where I can do it undercover or I can do it as I'm doing an extraction, all right? Then you perform an extraction and now you're in the warm zone or what would typically be your tactical field care. Okay, this is still not, we're gonna, not gonna do the end all be all for the patient at this point, but we are able to provide a couple more interventions to try and stabilize them so they can get to their definitive care. So if I need to start an IV and get something in this phase, I can. If I need to do a little bit more decontamination, I can. So that's why this lines up really nicely with what we consider our warm zone, where we can conduct our decontamination, but along with the decontamination, we can be doing some treatment along the way. There might be some advanced airway measures here. And so one of the concepts we talk about is this decon to treat. So if I have somebody that maybe has some airway issues I'm gonna deal with, I can let my decon team know, hey, just decon this, let's deal with this, the face, the airway, the neck, if I have to do a crike, and we'll decon the rest later, but let's decon the piece we need to deal with right now, and then we'll, we'll move on, okay? But eventually, as they transit this warm zone, we're gonna end up with a clean patient, okay? So they're going from red to green. We're going from a dirty patient to a clean patient, which means I have to have what kind of medic in this zone? I've got a dirty medic, right? Does a dirty medic leave this area? No. no, and so you can train somebody up to have a very unique skill set that can operate in that gray zone between a dirty patient and a clean patient and knows how to work around those things. And if you know that and train towards it, I think it will make things a little bit easier. You can develop some TTPs that are unique to this warm zone treatment area. And then finally, once you have a clean patient, you're gonna move them on to whatever your definitive care site is, your role three, and get them the care they need. Once they are completely deconned, they are just like every other patient, okay? And one of the things that most of the people in this room don't struggle with, but what I struggle with at a role three, is an incredible fear of the C. Bernie patient 
and they'll get to the hospital and say, oh my God, let's decon them again from head to toe. And then there's delays in patient care. Whereas I think if we're much more methodical about how we approach this, we'll be able to you know, facilitate some of that handoff so people are comfortable with the patient as they move through the system. So I think those are kind of some goals that we can work on. But once they do reach that cold zone, they are just like any other casualty. They get triage like any other casualty. And the treatments that you make are not bounded by anything that you know happened within the warm zone and the hot zone all right so just some principles to go through so in the hot zone remember we're only doing what you have to do to save this patient's life so everything up there is pretty common sense just do what needs to be done remember at this phase we're also trying to use our cover and concealment principles just use them and apply them to see burning so say this was a nuclear agent I'm going to want to get behind something, right? I'm going to want to get under something. Same exact principles apply that would apply in any other tactical situation. You could just take C. Bernie and overlie it. Um, everything in this zone is very agent dependent. We've already talked about what are the two that are going to kill you? Nerve and cyanide, okay? Anybody know? We're going to talk about cyanide later, but what's the treatment for cyanide? So it's cyanokit, which is hydroxycobalamin. Um, you have to give it, it's only given parenterally, so whether or not I would do it in the hot zone, kind of arguable. So I can even simplify this down unless you're a very confident provider with cyanocobalamin. Nerve agent is really the only one we're dealing with here with our auto injectors. And so it really does simplify what do I need to do for my Seaburney agent. Now, we talked about, so in our March sequence, the M was what? For the Seaburney. Mask. mask okay so here's the rule if I need a mask my patient needs a mask right so you're gonna deal with that what was the a antidote so what did I just say is probably the only thing we're gonna effectively deliver in this zone auto injectors okay so that's my a and then R rapid spot decon so I'm not saying that we're gonna take somebody and we're gonna wash them down and we're gonna wipe them all over with with lotion but if they have maybe a breach from an injury, I might want to wipe that off before they absorb any more, okay? So say they've got a hole in their suit, or maybe there's a focal area of skin that was exposed. It might be reasonable in this area to wipe that off before ongoing contamination can occur. That is a decision point you'd have to make, but it helps you in that decision tree to know, I'm only doing what needs to be done to save this person's life. So if I'm gonna decide to do that rapid spot decon, it should be to save that patient's life. Does that make sense? Okay, and then lastly, we're gonna get the heck out of there, all right? And in this phase, the medic's dirty, all right? Um, one of the things that I know when we go through C. Bernie training, they treat it like it's an all or nothing. And it's like, oh my God, the ground's dirty. You failed this station if you put a knee down on the ground. Who here has been failed on the station for putting their knee down? I want to get away from that stuff. It paralyzes us. It paralyzes us and it makes us fearful of caring for these patients because we get our heads so wrapped around this stuff that we can't effectively care for the patients. Now granted, if there's an oily pile of mustard there, I'm not going to stick my knee in it. But a lot of this C. Bernie contamination that occurs is not going to be in a pile on the ground. 
And if it is, I, you know, I, I'm going to have to do what I'm going to have to do. And so it's like common sense rules applies here. And so some of this is trying to move towards a much more, hey, let's train this how we fight and figure out how to do it. All right, so once you get into the warm zone, this is would be where your dirty CCP would be, okay? So it's your, where all your dirty casualties are coming and collecting, and you're going to set up your hotline with your shuffle pit and all those kind of things to transition them over to a clean side. So you have to think about this ahead of time. And we already discussed some of these things. So again, just like any other scenario, wherever you receive patients, you go back to the beginning, right? Start over with your march sequence. You're going to reassess them quickly, and then you're going to move on to more deliberate um, treatments. All right? We talked about this decon to treat concept. Obviously, it'd be nice to decon everybody head to toe very deliberately, but we're also doing patient care simultaneously, so we have to learn to be able to adjust to treat, to save the lives, and then we'll move on with the rest of the decon as needed, and that takes a little bit of nuancing of that medic working in that area, so you have to practice it. And then one of the other big key things here is the hypothermia. And that's why we keep it in that March sequence, reminding you that decon in of itself is going to create hypothermia. It just is. I mean, even when you do it in a warm environment, if you get enough water sprayed on you, you get a little chilly after a while. And if you're a trauma patient on top of it, that's a bad thing. So remember going through your sequence that that's a priority. Okay? At this stage of the game, dealing with that hypothermia is a priority. All right, so then when we get to cold zone, this is where it gets easy. They're just a patient. And guess what? You've stabilized them prior to that, so you have enough time to look stuff up, to call consultants, to do all the things you need to do. However, I'll caveat that, this might be your prolonged field care phase. All right? So it might be that everything's shut down because a seabird event has happened. We're not moving patients. Aircraft are moving. Oh, heaven forbid the Air Force doesn't show up. That never happens. You know, so I think probably the more reality of this is going to be a prolonged field care situation, which is why everybody should be familiar with the advanced care of these severity patients because you might be having to manage somebody who has secondary pulmonary edema, those kind of things. And so here is where you have time to look that up, to call consultants, to do all those kind of things. All right. So if you forget everything I said today, I just want you to remember this, okay? TCCC is so important and has worked so well that I think C. Bernie just needs to line up with it. And if you leave this room and profits, whatever that word is, going out, please carry this out and start teaching it, trying it, and let's see how we do. All right, so now I'm gonna talk kind of like some specific agents. And I can say a lot, um, but sometimes what we don't say is just as important, but we will keep moving on. All right, so now we're kind of getting into like nitty gritty science. So we were talking about nerve agents. Remember I was telling you that? That's really your critical decision, okay? There is no biologic agent out there that's gonna kill you in the first five minutes. And I would put on the table that if there's a new grads event, there's nothing you're going to do about it other than get cover 
in the first few minutes, all right? So when we break this down, I'm an ER doc, I'm really simple. What do I need to do in the first two minutes of seeing my patient? And it really comes down to I have to decide, is it a nerve agent and am I gonna treat them? So remember, we're in a tactical environment. What's the treatment for nerve agent? Atropine. What happens when I give somebody atropine? Dries them up. What does it do to their eyes? It stops their ability to accommodate. So you'll see it as dilation, but what it does is it does not allow the eye to make the fine adjustments needed to be able to focus. So what have I done on a tactical level? I have taken somebody who's a fighter and turned them into a non-combatant. All right? Period. They are not going to be able to effectively engage the enemy. The caveat of that, if I don't treat them and they're poisoned with nerve agent, they're going to die. All right? I'm not saying that we should cavalierly treat nerve agent patients, but when in doubt, err on the side of treatment and say, point in that direction and shoot. Okay, but just recognize they're not gonna be able to effectively engage. They will not be able, and this has actually been tested, they will not be able to um, acquire a target. All right? Guys can't do What's that? I know guys can't do that anyway. Well, that's just, hey, you know, <laughs> just point that way. But, so then, you know, my big question was, is how do we decide? And I actually questioned the books because in all the stuff put out by Dietrich and the, and the scientists, you know, they talk about meiosis, and it was all based on one case report of a guy who was poisoned in the lab. Every decision tree that's come out of there was based on that one guy that got poisoned in the lab about 20 years ago, and they took a bunch of pictures of him, and he had small pupils. The organophosphate patients that I've taken care of that have been exposed to organophosphates did not all have meiosis. So I'm a little concerned about using that as a diagnostic criteria. However, if it's true nerve agents, if it's weaponized nerve agents, they're gonna get meiosis. If it's just somebody in their garage trying to make a bomb with organophosphates, it might not hold true, just so you guys are aware. But if somebody has meiosis and they're wet everywhere, okay, so I'm lacrimating, salivating, urinating on myself, sweating like crazy, and I have small pupils, that's nerve agent until proven otherwise, go ahead and treat them, okay? So this uh, kind of gets to, if we look at our, our one experience that we have of nerve agent poison patients, this was in the Tokyo subway. The guys that came, oops. Wow. How'd I do that? That's pretty cool. Um, the folks that came into the ERs in Tokyo, they all had meiosis with sarin. And sarin was actually what the guy was exposed to in the lab, so it kind of holds up tight. Now, people are like, well, I can take all these detectors to the field so I can figure it out. Do you have time? No. So here's, you know, like, so here's the equipment. First of all, that's way too many pieces. In a panic, I'm gonna open that up, that crap's gonna be all over the ground, and it's gonna be completely useless. Now, is it useful for forensics? Yes, if I'm trying to confirm what something was and use it from an intelligence standpoint, then I got no problem with this, but anybody that expects to pull this out in a patient care environment is absolutely off their rocker because it's gonna be stressful and hard and that is not gonna happen and if anybody tries to get you to do that, tell them I said no. Okay, um, I don't know what that means, but it, it sounds good. 
And then when we look at um, measuring cholinesterase levels, so nerve agents inhibit acetylcholinesterase, right? So if we look at the cholinesterase levels, look how all over the place they are. Completely useless test. There can be people that are clinically poisoned that still have normal cholinesterase levels because everybody is variably different. So unless I have your baseline and I carry it around with me on a car, just like we write down serial numbers for weapons, and go, oh, your cholinesterase level is such and such, it's not, it's not useful. So again, don't carry a bunch of diagnostic treat equipment with you that is not gonna be effective in the acute phase. All right, so we talked about this a little bit about already, so atropine. What's going to happen? So in addition to taking them out of the fight, what does it put, at, put them at risk for? Can't sweat anymore with atropine, right? So what's my patient at risk for? Hyperthermia. Okay. So now granted, maybe that's a good thing as they're going through the decon line and they're getting their hypothermia from the water. But honestly, it's a real concern if I give somebody atropine and ask them to keep fighting, I got to keep an eye on them because they do not have their normal cooling mechanisms. And remember, they're going to be in gear and all that kind of stuff. And so significant risk. So you have to think about it. Okay. Um, so once you get them up to three auto injectors, they start getting a little bit delirious. They can hallucinate and they can get a little bit wacky. Is that who you want armed? No. So if I'm escalating to all three of my auto injectors, I've got to have somebody assigned to keep an eye on you know the loonies in the zoo at that point because it can get a little weird. So that's atropine. What's the other thing in the auto injectors? Two pam. Okay. So why do we use two pam? Is it better? It's a, it's permanent. Where's the, the restore the uh, yeah? So it res restores your um, acetylcholinesterase, and so you can then go back and break down the the uh, nerve agent. Um, however, is it better than the other stuff that's out there? It's not. Okay. So other countries use different agents. HI six probably being the most commonly used one. And so if you look at these agents, so here's two pam pralidoxine. Obidoxine is another one. HI6 is what the Brits use. They're all over the place in terms of how they work for the different agents. So what we've done is we've just said, you know what? We have a lot of clinical data on pralidoxine, and it's really easy to get in our country. So that's what we're going to carry. But you should know, doesn't work against this, doesn't work against that. Um, you should know the limitations of what you're treating with. Okay. Um, however, you still can keep somebody alive with atropine. It's just you're going to be treating them for a really long time. Just recognize that. When we decide to stock stuff in the future, we should probably take this into consideration. They're always doing R&D to try and figure out is there something better. But you should take that into consideration. All right. So if the patient seizes, the seizures are actually a result of that cholinergic activity. It starts a cholinergic process in the brain, and then that eventually flips the switch for our typical seizure patterns, which are mediated by a biochemical called GABA. Okay, so there's a process. You can actually reverse the seizures early on with atropine. Whoever thought atropine was an anti-seizure medicine? It actually is for a nerve agent if you get it on board immediately. However, as they progress, it, it then degenerates into a typical seizure pattern. And what's our medication of choice for seizures? 
benzos, okay? So you need to get benzos on board. Now, this is what I found really interesting, is though, even though the atropine treats the seizures early on, if you only treat them with the atropine, there, and this was, you know, obviously animal studies, their incidence of dying was 34%. If you use the atropine and the benzos, then look how much it decreased the mortality. And so, you know, we always go, the patient's gotta be really bad to give the benzo, right? We gotta wait for them to seize. I would actually argue, put all that shit on board as soon as you know they're poisoned. Sorry, I know you're recording. Um, <laughs> and get it all on board because it's actually gonna help your patient. So, and then in terms of benzodiazepines, what's in the auto-injectors? Which one? Which benzodiazepine? Valium. It's Valium, right? So, let's look at what the most effective benzodiazepine is. So here, diazepam is Valium. So that's like how much dose it took, that's how much time it took to work, okay? You guys can see that dose, time it took to work. Actually, midazolam versed is much more effective. So it's not what we have in our auto injectors, but if I as a medic am packing my bag, sure as 40, I'm gonna stick some midazolam in my bag and have some drawn up ready to go if there's a significant sea burning threat, okay? Just want everyone to know that. So there's a reason, it's actually more bioavailable, I am. It gets to the brain better and faster than Valium. So still use your auto injectors, but when you need more stuff, I would actually pack this. All right, cyanide, just really quickly wanna cover this. Cyanide, if we encounter it on the battlefield, boy, it's gonna suck. Um, this, the, the cyanide patients I've cared for went from walkie-talkie to coma in 30 minutes or less. All right, so this is a sick, sick patient, and in a tactical environment, other than going, Holy crap, that guy is in shock, like really bad shock, like blood pressure, 50 over nothing, looks like crap, and I don't know why. You have to think of cyanide. Um, but that's a hard, I don't know if I would catch that. I, you know, I'm like, I'm a toxicologist, I don't know if I would catch that in the field. So unless there was actual intelligence that led me up to believe it and I could prepare for it, I think this is gonna be a hard one in the field. However, in a setting where it's like, yeah, we know somebody's driving down the road with a bomb with cyanide in it and it went off and you can be prepared to deal for it, you can effectively respond. So if you are in a situation where you can do some diagnostics, um, lactates are useful because it's gonna be a lactic acidosis that shuts down your ability to use oxygen. So you go into, you become an anaerobe. You're basically body is churning. It's like stepping on the accelerator and the gas at the same time. Everything's rolling, but nothing's happening. Um, so that's why your lactate goes up. Your levels are absolutely useless. You're not going to get them back at any time. So the only way to make this diagnosis is clinically. Oh, and I forgot this one. Um, forgot that one bullet. The venous and arterial sample. So the one test you could do in a field environment that doesn't require anything except a tube to put blood in, you can draw an arterial sample and a venous sample at the same time. So just stick the radial artery, draw some out, just do like you would normally do, draw an IV line. And if you look at them and they're close to the same color, that probably cyanide because you're not pulling out the oxygen, so your venous blood is still oxygenated. So that's a rapid field test you can do. I've done it in the ER, it actually works really well. Um, so you can think about that. And then your treatment used to be 
this cyanide antidote kit, which was this three-part kit that had poppers in it and then had the amyl nitrate and the sodium theosulfate. The problem is the way that kit worked is it caused methemoglobin, which is an alternate form of hemoglobin that would pull the cyanide off, but it impairs your oxygen carrying ability. So in a trauma patient or a burn patient or somebody who has all these other things going on, giving them methemoglobin is a bad idea. So if that kit is out there someplace and you run across it, I would lean towards getting rid of it and trying to replace it with hydroxycobalamin. What hydroxycobalamin is, is it's a provitamin. It's provitamin B12. If you are cyanide poisoned and I give you hydroxycobalamin, your body complexes it with the cyanide and makes cyanocobalamin, which is a vitamin. So I have taken you from being a devastatingly poisoned patient to now having a very nice vitamin B12 level. Okay, so it's a pretty amazing drug. It took a while to come along because of how the formulation was made, but now that we finally have it, there's no reason not to carry it. It's pretty easy to give. The one thing that you do have to know is the diluent does not come in the box. So if you are not prepared with like a 200 cc bag, 250 cc bag, whatever, you know, to, to dilute it with, you're going to have an ineffective kit, and I've seen a couple people do that. They pull it out of their bag, they're not carrying any fluids with them, and they can't effectively deliver them that. So make sure you carry the one with you. All right, and then just real quick on ticks and tams with chlorine being the most likely, phosgene, maybe. Um, I've cured for actually a couple of these. I had a chemical plant explosion. Um, where we got a lot of casualties from that that were trauma and chemical exposures and then I had a train derailment um, with chlorine and we took care of a lot of those. Really it's supportive care. There is nothing fancy to care in for these patients. If they're coughing, try and help them cough less. If they're wheezing, treat them as wheezers. If they have pulmonary edema, you have to treat that. More with PEEP, you don't want to diurese them because actually they're already usually a little bit volume down. So you really want to use PEEP as your treatment thing. But really there's nothing about these patients that is difficult or challenging. So I tell people, just treat them like you treat every other respiratory patient. Look at their symptoms, figure it out, and treat them accordingly. The only one that is the exception is hydrogen sulfide. So hydrogen sulfide is called a knockdown gas. Typically, people that respond to hydrogen sulfide, so somebody will go in and they will actually pass out before they smell it because it fatigues your olfactory receptors. So patient down. And then a responder goes, oh, down patient. They run in after them, patient down. Okay, so I have actually seen sequences of four people go down from hydrogen sulfide. And so in that case, um, you really have to think about that scene safety and getting out there and getting into it. If a patient survives a hydrogen sulfide, because usually they go in, they pass out, and then they asphyxiate. They don't die of the hydrogen sulfide, they just die of not breathing. If you actually get the patient out and they're still alive, you can treat them with that old cyanide kit. It will help them. But for the most part, time is actually the treatment. So if you don't have that, don't worry about it. Um, phosgene. One of the big take-homes for phosgene that we learned during the world wars is they're going to be clinically asymptomatic after exposure. They're going to come to you and you're going to look at them and they're going to look fine. And then the temptation is you look fine. Back into the fight you go. That's a problem. They're going to develop pulmonary edema hours later and actually we know that their mortality is worse 
if they exerted themselves after exposure. So if you have a suspected phosgene exposures, you have to contain those patients and put them in a holding area until they prove themselves to be clinically asymptomatic, which really isn't until 24 hours out. Very hard thing to do in a tactical situation. Um, just so you think about it. Mustard, mustard's easy. Just get it off of them. They're gonna blister, their blood counts might drop, but it's all stuff gonna happen way after they see you. Get them cleaned off and get them moved on, and then we'll take care of them down the road. You have to think about secondary decantation, what do they touch? Um, when I was in Iraq, we had a guy who was handling mustard munitions who didn't tell anybody. He transited so many different aircraft that we then had to track down and make sure he didn't leave his crap all over it. Um, so make sure you're deconning these patients, you document it, and then you communicate very directly with the chain as you're passing it along so you don't create unnecessary heartache on um, decontaminating assets. All right, so some take homes. Everybody just needs basic skills. You gotta be able to get your PPE or yard good for anything. Everybody should have some basic decon skills as well. But now we can take our TCCC, add the March squared on top of it, put that skill set down, and then everybody's gotta just do it. You have to get out there, you have to practice this stuff because it doesn't come naturally. Working in the equipment doesn't come naturally. Things are harder, things move slower. Communication is harder. So unless you practice it and develop your own little skill set and the team you're working with, it, um, it's kind of destined for failure. So kind of encourage everybody to think about it, train on it, and you know, educate yourselves, even though it's hard, because it's like, uh, I just want to put that in the back, back burner. All right, there it is again. Don't forget. All right, what questions do you have? That's another one for the books. Make sure to go to the site, www.prolongedfieldcare.org. Post your questions, post your comments, make your voice heard. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast, out.